Welcome to the Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. Hey, Professor, good morning. Good morning to you, Matt. I got a question for you before oh, oh, we go to oh, your fact okay. of the day. Do what you know what episode this is of 2023 for us? 2023. For the if you're bringing it up, it's got to be a decent, I don't know, 20? Uh, 25. 25 episodes wow, this year. Man, this yeah. is flying. I guess that's what happens when you have good guests, right? I don't know about your presence, but definitely the yeah, guests are it. making this fly. Yeah, I'm glad you don't know. If, if you knew exactly, you'd think it's it's more homework. But we got a great guest today. Gabby Herzig is, is joining us from Sports Illustrated. I uh, have wanted to chat with her for a while. And we finally we finally pinned her down. She's been moving, she's been traveling like a mad woman. Firing and tweets, just just one of the best follows on Twitter for sure in terms of information. It's like I don't I don't think she sleeps. Um I think she loves all things golf. I mean, just the amount of different things she covers, men's game, women's games, the mental side of the game, just stream of consciousness stuff. It's, yeah, great follow. If you're not following her, get on it. Well, we got uh, we got a very special announcement before we get to Gabby as well today. Um, do you want to hit us with your fun fact, though, and then I'll get to our, our big announcement? Yeah, yeah, let's do that because I'm I'm very excited about this announcement. It's been a it's been a fun couple of weeks. I'm not good at keeping my mouth shut, so let's. Yeah, uh, you kind of blew the announcement. Actually, anyone that follows Kevin on the social medias, he kind of blew our cover. But anyways, I mean, especially got to got to tease the crowd. You got to give them what they want, right? Like I come out of the woods every once in a while. Um, empathy. Do you consider yourself empathetic, Matt? I sure, in my best days, I sure try to be, yes. You try to be, yeah. It's yeah. one of the things I consider to be the most important things in the world um, in just terms of the human condition, right? This year has actually been a year of empathy for me, like in terms of something I've tried to adopt in just any interaction that I've had. I was, and I was listening to a, a great podcast. Um, people probably picked up. I'm a huge Huberman, Huberman Lab podcast follower. Um, had on recently Dr. Uh, Shankar, I believe is how you pronounce her name. She runs a podcast. Let me look it up to get this right because I listened to this one too, A Slight Change of Plans, also a great podcast if you're into the podcast world. She was a going to be a world-renowned violinist, tour attendant, had to change her entire life because of that. She has a whole podcast around you know changing plans in life. Um, so go listen to her. Anyways, she's a cognitive behaviorist or psychologist, um, big into research on empathy and did you know there are different forms of empathy? So this is the fact of the day. I did not. So there's actually three different forms. When you think of empathy, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Like if you were to, to define empathy in a short way to someone, what would you say? Walking in someone else's shoes. Yeah, so just like feeling what someone else feels sort of thing. All right, that's that's the major form of empathy that we know of, that we, we think of, right? This is called um, emotional empathy is what you might call it. It's basically the empathy of reaction. So you feel what someone else feels, right? If someone's grieving in front of you and I just lost, to say, my child or my mo my mom or something like that, you can bring that emotion to yourself, right? You might tear up. So you have this emotional empathy. Um, there's two others that are just important, if not more important. One of them is cognitive empathy. So that's actually being able to look at and diagnosing what's causing someone else's stress or emotional um, trauma. And then being able to identify what you can offer to help them, right? Because you just crying in front of them might not help them at all. But cognitive empathy is then processing like, okay, this individual, what do I know about them, the state they're in, my skill sets, what can I do to help them out, whatever that is. So that's cognitive empathy. Then the third one is just empathetic, empathetic, empathic concern, I think is how you, you, you uh, describe it. Better term for it, the easier one to say that can come out of my mouth, compassion. That's the third one, right? Just 
having the actual desire to understand and help someone out. So that's even a form of empathy as well, just wanting to do that um, and having that desire to do. Because again, you could be, someone could give you, tell you a sad story and you cry with them. You might even try to problem solve with, with them, but it doesn't mean you want to do that. So actually wanting to do that and having that being one of your life goals. So three forms of empathy. I'd suggest everyone reflect on their own life. Where, what are you good at? What are you bad at? Embrace that. That's okay. And then think about some of those areas that you're weak in and work on them, right? If you find yourself always, you know, feeling someone else's emotions but never be able to help them, well, think about how you might be able to, you know, um, actionize your empathy and do better there. Yeah, take action. The actual doing of, yep. of empathy. I actually, I'm going to use this. Thank you, Professor. Because uh, my wife tells me that I, uh, uh, I tend to be empathetic, but uh, I'm always fixing things. I'm trying to fix the situation. Mm-hmm. And she will remind me that I don't need you to fix anything. I need you to listen. And so it sounds like I need a little bit more of the concern empathy. I need a little bit more of the uh, uh, sympathetic or the the top empathy, whatever that one was. Yeah, emotional and empathy. Emotional empathy and not as much as the cognitive empathy because the cognitive empathy is what I'm thinking about. I'm like, all right, how do I alleviate this for, for people, for my... Uh, loved ones. And that's interesting, man. Yeah. I some, see. Something to think about too is like on the cognitive side, it's not just your problem solving. Like what's the problem solving that helps them out, right? Like I'm yeah. the same way with Claire. Like I try to problem solve, but it's not helping her out, right? My attempt at problem solving isn't her attempt at problem solving. So it's really understanding what will help them, right? What is it that they need? And that could just be listening, right? That is a form of right. cognitive empathy to be like, yeah, my yeah, spouse that's, just that's needs fix your problems. Yeah. Let's fix your problems so I can get back to my problems, yeah. right? <laughs> Let's talk about me for a second. <laughs> uh, th- hey, thanks for always bringing these because I don't have the time for any more podcasts in my life, but I feel like this five-minute interlude always teaches me what I need for, you know, outside of the golf world. Um, in get, the golf world. Yeah, let's get to the announcement. Yeah, we got an announcement. So, uh, it's a special one. It's important for for uh, New Club Golf Society. It's important for the Bag Drop Podcast, uh, and it's a tremendous honor. I think that it's um, now New Club Golf Society is in partnership with Titleist. Titleist, an icon, a a, a brand that is synonymous with the game of golf. Uh, just an excellent fit for both this club and the podcast. And um, Professor, I, I know we've been kind of you've been involved in some of these conversation with Titleist, but I just think, you know, it's, it's this, this preservation of both tradition and innovation and, you know, enjoyment and passion for the game. Um, couldn't be, couldn't be more excited to, to have this opportunity with Titleist. What I want to know is when do we get the new club golf society rolled back ball? That's, that's the one I want to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. We, we asked to be put on the task force. That was our one requirement was we want to be on this, that's, this new ball, uh, committee, if you will, M- MLR. Yeah. They is, turned us down on that, but the man, it's, it's been fun just getting to chat with them and learn from them. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's so fascinating the amount of detail that goes into, I mean, I think they call themselves, I mean, the number one ball in golf they've talked about, but often number one equipment in golf, I think is something to try to brand themselves out. And you look at the level of detail they give to their craft and what they're building and what they're trying to do from golfers. And it is impressive. Yeah. And, and, uh, for those listening who are members of new club, we are getting it started in a really unique and interesting way that directly impacts some of our members. So we're, uh, going to have a special treat at the end of the year, those that are listeners, obviously members of New Club, you'll be familiar with our season-long Team Stableford competition, the Quest for the Crown. We have that 
badass crown that gets placed on top of heads at the end of the season. Uh, this year, in addition to the crown, each member of that team, the winning team for Quest, will also be getting fit for a full set of the new Titleist T-Series irons. So if you're a member in Atlanta, a member in Chicago, or one of our national members anywhere, international, it doesn't matter. Titleist has certified fitters all across the planet that uh, have been to Carlsbad, that go to Area 31 and get their uh, uh, certified Titleist fitting, not just a, uh, any fitter. Um, it is certified with Titleist equipment. And uh, we're going to fit those that winning team. Those four are going to get free fitting. They're going to get free um, Titleist T-Series irons irons on Titleist and uh, couldn't be couldn't be more excited for that opportunity for our members. I mean, you and I recently went through this process, Kevin, just so we could be knowledgeable about it. What uh, what, what was your fitting experience like? Oh, educative. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, I'm particular about everything I do and, and that includes in golf. I'm very particular about my equipment, been a Strixon guy since 2015. So I went in there like ready to like, hey, just be skeptical, right? I was just ready to like, and man, they entertained me and I learned a lot. There were several things, especially when I got into like the the gapping of the 654 and thinking about what I should be, what I would like to see. And I'm sitting there wanting to see one window thing and I'm hitting this, that the U505 and it is taking it straight up in there. And I'm like, there's no way that thing's carrying more than 180, right? And we sit there and look at the numbers, spin rate's perfect, the wind's not gonna touch it. And the carry is right there at my old four iron, but actually something that's going to hold the green, right? So it's actually coming down in that sort of 10 yards more than the the five iron was and just at a trajectory that will actually hold the green. So, so just kind of opened my mind to seeing a different ball flight that is going to be so much more functional in all weather conditions and also lead to me. Um, just being able to hit some shots that I didn't have with the old club. So it was fun for them to really changed my mind on something and had me seeing a totally different flight that then I, when it first came out, I'm like, that's no good. There's no way that's doing what it needs to do. Yeah. I, you know me, I'm not a numbers guy and uh, I'm a field player, as I like to say. And um, I, I, I loved seeing the numbers in context because I had a very similar experience where I thought my ball flight needed to come down. They kind of proven to me that it didn't. We just had to optimize for that, that angle of descent, as they call it, was, was, perfect. We just had to get the spin right. And so I ended up with all T100s, which hmm. um, was a surprise to me. I was hoping for like the four combo sets that you see out there. But I am one little piece I'm really excited for. Yeah, right you got here, something in your hand professor, right now. And I got, you saw it. The T200 driving iron. This is the same uh, hazardous black from our friends at True Temper 105. Uh, you may have seen this recently with Rory McIlroy on the 18th hole at Renaissance Club. Uh, after this podcast, I will be out roasting this club on the drive range. Looking forward to that. I can't wait to watch you try to hit punch shots around Parkland courses with that club. That's going to be uh, <laughs> just channeling your inner Renaissance 72nd hole. I mean, best shot we've seen in the last couple of years, I would say, uh, yeah. in golf. But yeah. For me, it's it's all about that deeper connection, man. I, I want to know my equipment. I want to feel good about it. And I want to have more fun playing the game. So thank you to Titleist. Uh, go find a Titleist fitter near you uh, or win the quest for the crown. And and this this winter, you'll be getting fit for the new Titleist T-Series irons. Today's episode of The Bag Drop is presented by Titleist and their new T-Series irons. Thank you to Team Titleist for supporting our members this year in the club. Uh, we look forward to the partnership and more exciting announcements ahead. Professor, shall we move on to the show? Let's do it. Gabby Herzig, welcome to The Bag Drop. 
Thank you, guys. I'm very happy to be here. It's good to be with you. Uh, where do we find you in there? Are you, are you over in France right now? Are you, you sipping uh, uh, champagnes and, and taking in some, some professional ladies golf? I wish, I wish. I'm doing it from afar. Um, all the social media posts from Evian look luscious. <laughs> so I'm very jealous of the people over there. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm on the East Coast right now. I'm actually in Maine visiting some family. So it should be a nice little weekend away from New York City. Nice, nice. Are, do you get much, I know you're a big golfer and we, we want to get to your background, but like during the year when you're covering all the different events, the men's game, the women's game, the amateur game, the college, like, do you get much golf in? Do you get to play? <laughs> no, I wish. Um, I, so I work on the weekends, obviously covering the, any, whatever tournament is happening that weekend and whatever is going on in the golf world. So usually my days off are Mondays and Tuesdays. So I try to get out when I'm off, but it's honestly like no one else has those days off. So it's kind of like me going to my home course and playing or, you know, however many holes we can get in before sunset with some of the assistant pros at my home course and just whoever I can find there. So it's been kind of fun to do that. But obviously, I would love to play some more golf and hopefully that'll happen in the fall shortly. So the, the, the professor uh, said it in, in our intro, um, that you're a fantastic follow on, on the web uh, with, with Twitter and just updates. And I think you bring a sense of humor to, to the game of golf that is well needed in the professional game. Um, but, uh, but many may, might not know kind of your, your background and your story. So if, if you wouldn't mind, like, tell us where you're from. Uh, I, I know you went to high school in the Bronx um, now I don't know that many golfers from the Bronx, so I'm curious to just hear like, <laughs> like how, how'd you get into the game and, and tell us a little bit about where you're from? Yeah. So I grew up in Manhattan in New York city, um, which obviously would not be the first place you'd think that someone who is obsessed with golf is from. But, um, I got into the game first because of my grandparents on my mom's side of my family who are based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, and my grandpa played at the University of Minnesota, um, played college golf there. And my grandma was like a junior state champion. And they both were really early on the, you know, competitive golf wave. And wow. they've been nuts for it ever since. So when I was growing up, um, I have a bunch of cousins on, on that side of the family. And the other, the other cousins didn't really get the golf bug, I would say. But then when the Herzigs came along, it was kind of like, you know, this is, my grandparents' last chance to have golf grandchildren. <laughs> so we were uh, taken to the driving range, my brothers and I, and um, we fell in love with it immediately and kind of grew up playing in New York over the summers, going to any you know public course we could find in the tri-state area, but then also visiting my grandparents where they live and playing with them and taking lessons. Um, they also spent some winters in Scottsdale, Arizona. So that's why you'll see me kind of posted up there for a couple of weeks every winter um, visiting them. And I grew up playing a lot of golf over there. And that's where my first coach ever was based, Bobby Eldridge. He taught me how to love the game and all the etiquette that has like shaped my understanding of of golf even today and i still talk to him all the time um he's known me since i was six years old probably so it's a really awesome relationship and yeah then it kind of just progressed from there and i have two younger brothers the middle one 
the golf thing didn't really stick with him as much as the youngest one. His name is Robbie. You'll see him gracing my Twitter feed every once in a while. I like to brag about how hard he hits the ball. <laughs> um, but he's a D1 golfer at Colgate. So I kind of grew up playing and practicing with him. We'd go to tournaments all over the New York area. And once we both started to get a little bit more serious about golf, we ended up joining a club in Westchester called Old Oaks. So that's where we call home. And yeah, I basically practiced a ton, played a bunch of tournaments, and eventually got recruited to play golf at Pomona College in Southern California. Um, the high school golf wasn't quite part of the picture. Riverdale is my um, high school, which is in the Bronx, as you mentioned, like 30-minute commute from where I lived in Manhattan. Um, and the we literally played nine-hole match play, I think, for our high school tournaments, mm -hmm. which was pretty funny. Um, so it was kind of just like a nice way for me to practice and get out of gym class during the day. <laughs> and then the real stuff. What was the home the course? With, uh, oh my, you're not going to believe this. Um, Pelham Bay. Pelham okay. Bay and Van Cortland Park. Those are like two of the kind of staple golf courses in the Bronx that you can like take the subway to and do the whole uh -huh. New York golf experience. But then once in a while we'd get like some of the, some of the members of the team would, would be able to have us out at their home courses and we'd get to play a couple nice, um, nice tracks in the area, but it was definitely like a janky high school golf experience, but in the best way possible. So what was that move to California like, right? So you go from Manhattan all the way out to Pomona, which I believe is in Claremont. California? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So what was that move it's like? It's like, in, it was crazy. It's like in, in the Inland Empire, it's a totally different environment that I had ever lived in. Um, the climate obviously is, is wild. Like our first week of my freshman year was a massive heat wave and it was like 110 degrees and our dorms didn't have air conditioning. So everyone was like literally sleeping in the classrooms where there was AC. Um, oh, wow. But... It, it was amazing. I love Pomona. I found some of my best friends in the world there. Um, it was a whirlwind being able to play golf year round. That was such a new thing for me. Um, so there would be, you know, the other girls on my team, most of them were from California or a warm climate. So in the fall, they'd kind of be like, oh, yeah, we have, you know, our time to take off from golf. And I'd be like, let's go play on the weekends, guys. Like, I don't know what we're doing here. So I, I took advantage of it as much as I could. Um, there are some great little courses in that area that we were able to play and practice at. And um, now the Pomona D3 women's team is really, really good. When I was there, we were okay. We were kind of like always second or third in our division, but now they're, they made it to the national championship. Um, they played super well. So it's awesome to be able to follow the program and, and be a sage hen, and, just and, the weirdest You know, it all ever. started with you, right? You, you can take pride in that. Did you? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, so I had a weird college golf experience because COVID hit like really in the middle of it. Oh. So I only really got to play like two full years at Pomona, which were the most amazing years. And I, I really look back at them fondly. Um, you know, the, the van rides with the team, the, the late night dinners, the like studying on the road, all of that. Um, and then COVID hit. And right before COVID hit, the fall of my junior year, I decided to take off. I decided to skip our fall golf season basically to study abroad in Scotland, um, which I, I don't know if a lot of people know this. I need to talk about it more honestly. I need to like write a couple articles about my experience there. Yes, please but do. I, yeah, I need to because I have some great memories. But I basically studied at the University of Edinburgh for three, three and a half months. Um, and when I was there, I obviously was missing out on my fall golf season, but I wanted to play some golf because, you know, home of golf. <laughs> and that's, that was the main motivation for me going there too. Don't blame you. So, 
I basically joined like the club team at the University of Edinburgh, which is so different than a college golf team in the in the States. It's basically all student run and you're playing against like other golf clubs in the area, not just other schools. So like we went to um, Kill Spindy and played against yes. like the women's club there. And I literally got my butt whooped by this like 70 year old woman. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it was just the coolest thing ever. And um I'm I'm sad looking back on it that I didn't have those last couple college events to play. But at the same time, I wouldn't have given up my experience there for the world. I mean, I learned so much about myself and golf and everything. So it was great. What did what did you learn? I, I think that those that are uh, listening, Gabby, by the way, like I had such a very similar experience. I ended up staying for the year in Ireland, uh, leaving my college team to do, leaving the professor here, actually. Uh, I bailed on him for a while. Um, to, oh, really? To do Luck exactly me high and dry. You did. So I, okay. I love when people just have shared that experience. So mm-hmm. like, what, what did you learn from that three and a half months? Yeah, I feel like I learned kind of what the foundations of the game looked and felt like, I guess, if that makes sense. So, you know, I got I get there having no idea how to hit a stinger, no idea how to play links golf, like trying to hit my 60 degree from everywhere um, and absolutely failing miserably. <laughs> so it kind of like forced me to to kind of, you know, time travel back a little bit and like put put myself in this different mindset where I'm embracing the weather, I'm embracing the new conditions you know, ready to fail, ready to figure out what works and what doesn't, um, ready to lose a bunch of matches and and be happy about it and smile because, you know, I'm just thankful to be there, honestly. Um, so it was cool just to experience like the how different golf is over there than it is in the U.S. Um, one of the things I really liked about it was how democratic and egalitarian it is over there. Like, you know, anyone anyone can play. It's it's not that expensive. It's not that exclusive. At St. Andrews, you got the for the old course, you got the lottery system, which I won and got to play. Um, it's just so cool how how like everyone enjoys it in a way. And even if you don't play it yourself, you're like part of the golf community. You're having you're visiting the club. You're having dinners. You're in between matches, I know I didn't. I never played a 36 hole day when I was over there, but I know the guys' team. They would literally just like have this boozy meal in between the rounds, and it's like no one's talking about golf. And then you go into the locker rooms and change, and you're back in the zone. And it's like life is very separate from the game, I would say, but at the same time, it's very inter- intertwined. So. Those yeah. were just some of my observations, but I could go on forever about oh, this. <laughs> I, I, we want you to seriously write write that piece because I, I sometimes I struggle know. to share it with exactly what it is. But I think you hit hit it with the word community and not in a cliche way, but like it's it's just the fabric of things. It's not fussy. They they get on with it, as they say in Scotland. Just get on with it. Like mm-hmm. and and I, I just loved like when you played the ladies club there at Kilspindy, I'm sure you saw it directly, <laughs> man, that is, is community at its best where it's a shared experience, not this like, you know, selfish pursuit that golf sometimes can become. It's very all about the match and all about the the teams and all about the the club and the community, which I think is is the the most special part of it all. Yeah. And it's so multi-generational. Like I, I feel like I play with a bunch of different people of all ages at my club, but I feel like people often don't have that experience. And even like growing up playing with my grandparents, I'm kind of used to it. But over there, it's really like it's everyone's game, you know, and and 
they proved that they could compete because I was like all over the place at this golf course and these women were hitting every fairway and every green absolutely smacking me so it was it was cool to just experience how you know the the people really love the game over there and all of them do let let me ask this now last question related to your experience how was re-entry how was your golf game oh. specifically with re-entry? When you came back to the U.S., were you uh, did you rejoin the team, by the way? Or Yeah, I did. It was like basically we got back to school. It was like mid, late January, and we had like five or six weeks of prep and practice and qualifiers and then one tournament, which I didn't qualify for because I was rusty. Um, like I didn't make the starting lineup. And then basically kind of got my, my game together. I started to feel got on the course again I had some great qualifier scores and made the lineup for like the next two events that were going to be in Arizona and Georgia and then our entire season got shut down Mm, before those could happen uh, yeah so it was tough I I got I I would say I got um better at Lynx golf and I like understood how to navigate it I started putting from everywhere I started hitting three woods and hybrids instead of instead of driver and just accepting that even though it was hard for me to do at first but then by the time it was like November, you can't really play anymore. It's just freezing. The weather is terrible. Like I tried a couple of times. I got uh, a, a couple of rounds in where we were definitely below 40 degrees, especially with the wind chill. And like my hands were just numb. <laughs> it was insane. You know, you got the beanie, the headband, the mittens are so key. I I'm sure you know, like taking the mittens on and off in between shots is literally life changing. Um, but yeah, when I came back, I probably hadn't picked up a club in like two months, honestly. So I had to, I had to really um, re, you know, readjust as as every golfer knows when it's time to come play again. <laughs> yeah, I find, you know, we did a trip last year, and then Matt and I did a trip back in two thousand five, and obviously Matt did the whole Ireland thing. Like one of the hard, one of the things I love about the game over there, I think this ties into you're very passionate about the mental side of the game as well. I always feel mentally at peace when I'm playing in Scotland because of just the history that's there, the way they consume it. Like you just feel everything's cohesive, right? Like you just feel calm on the course. Where here, I always feel hyper competitive. Do you feel any of that difference as someone that is so attuned to the mental side of the game of when you're playing over there versus when you, you know, came back and were playing over here? Yeah, 100%. I feel like the weather in a way in Scotland kind of makes you like puts things into perspective that like you don't matter that much. Like you are this tiny human like on the coast and you're just going to get pelted with rain and wind and like you can't do anything about it. You know what I mean? Like I I feel like one of the mental one of the sides of the mental game that I find so interesting is like what Um, controlling the controllables and like what you can what you can um, improve in your own game and what you can't and not spending too much energy on that stuff so I felt like in a sense like being in Scotland and playing these links courses where anything could happen in the middle of the round you just have to accept it kind of puts you at peace because you're like you know everyone's playing the same game here I'm not gonna get upset about how I'm soaking wet and have to dry off in the 40 mile per hour winds because everyone is in the same boat you know what I mean so in a sense that it's it's peaceful in that way and also just you know all the history around it how quaint everything is how old everything is like I don't know have you guys played North Berwick Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, now yeah. you're getting to the professors yeah. list. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's 
obviously, I think it was my favorite course that I played over there, aside from the old course. Mm -hmm. And like you, you, they're brick stone walls that just cross in the middle of the fairway. And you're just like, I'm, I'm playing this awesome game, but it's on like untouched land in a way. So you kind of just feel one with like the coast and the town and the history. And you're just like kind of navigating around it and respecting it. Um, and I just thought that was the coolest experience ever. It was the first course that I played when I got there. I had like made the tea time two months in advance or something and nothing, obviously nothing lived up to it after that. So that was probably a mistake, but um, it was, it was amazing. I got paired with like this Scottish guy who was like just walking by himself with this push card and his wife was just like following along with him, not playing. And we had the best time ever. And it, it, it rained so hard for like 30 minutes in the middle of the round right on that famous hole i think is it 13 with with when the, the stone wall, wall yeah, is yeah. right by the green yeah 13 mm. it was raining so hard and i was so mad because i couldn't take a picture of it but i was like you know what this is how it was meant to be so <laughs> i made double and walked away there is something that makes yeah you just put you at peace with it i love what you said there about I think you can imply that you're not that important to that too. Like it feels like a lot of the courses in America were made for you to play on and consume where the course is there. It's like, no, this land's always been here. And yeah, you get the, you get the opportunity to walk along it and hit a little ball, but it's not made for you to do that. It just happens to be there and you get to do that. Um, along with, you know, hundreds of years of people doing that. Mm -hmm. I love that about it. And I think you touched on the variables and I, I feel like it's very, um, us American ideal to control every variable, not just like the controllables, but like try to take un look like uh, Bryson comes to mind, right? Like going and and doing you, you can't, you just can't. And golf is is beautiful in that way, where you have to kind of uh, subject yourself to the unknown and and let that that occur. They do it so well over there, and we do it so poorly here. But uh, I think our climate, I think the way that we condition our golf courses, it makes it more obtainable to try to control all those those variables. So I, I was curious, Gabby. Now, kind of relating to your your journalism career and the golf that you cover, on the mental side, are there players that you just are like fascinated by on on their mental approach or whether they're really good at it or they they just approach it a certain way mm -hmm. yeah definitely i would say um i feel like i pick up on little things that players say in press conferences here and there that like no one would blink an eye at but it kind of gives you like a peek into what they're working on off the course and even this interview that i did with Xander Shoffley earlier this year. Um, and I feel like people don't really take him as someone who's like, you know, hyper aware of like his his mental game and is like super strict about routine and blah, 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 blah. But I, ha I had this interview with Xander. I kind of just asked him like what he's working on on the mental side. And he said something super interesting about how um, off the golf course, he kind of like actively tests his patience for and like, prepares for the moments on the course where he might be frustrated or have to let go of something quickly. So he like, he gave the example of like driving and road rage. Like when he's, when he's on the road and something pisses him off, he practices like calming himself down. And, or if he's in the grocery store and someone's being annoying, like he literally actively thinks about like how his body and mind are reacting to those like everyday scenarios, which is 
such a small thing and it's not super technical or it's not like you're not going to read about this in a book anywhere, but that is so cool that he like focuses on those things in his daily life. And it kind of just gives you like an into the mind of such a high level competitive athlete that like even in the most mundane circumstances in their everyday life, they are thinking about how they'll feel under the pressure of trying to win a major. So that was one of the cool, I feel like, tidbits that I picked up this year. That's like uh, Ben Hogan, I think they said, or maybe it was Byron Nelson, one of the, one of those two legends. They they said on competitive days, they would wake up, brush their teeth slow. They would drive to the course slow. They would, you know, go. It's not that they played slow, but the point was that they were instilling that patience to not rush yourself, that you're going to have a process here and it starts when you wake up. I always thought that was really interesting. So here Xander uh, does that on an off day, <laughs> driving to get groceries. I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's so cool. And like, you, even you, you hear about obviously Tiger's insane pre-round routines, getting up at four in the morning, getting his body ready. And it seems like every little detail is so planned and, and, set out and there's so much focus and attention to detail but then there's this whole kind of contradiction on the course where all of a sudden you have to treat it like any other round of golf which i think that they've, they've talked a bit about recently with some of these like new major winners brian Harmon like working his entire life to to win a major but you have to kind of go out there and pretend that none of this is happening or existing around you, which is the weirdest thing ever. And I feel like it's just something that you don't really have in other sports. Like a quarterback for a football team isn't going out to the field thinking, oh, just another game of football. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a very unique part of part of our sport, I would say, which fascinates me. Now, how did you get so interested in the mental side of the game? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say it started when... I've always, I, I mean, as a competitive golfer, like you're always kind of thinking about it. And I felt that for me, like it was kind of what was holding me back from being a be for being better. And I never kind of got a grasp on my own <laughs> mental game. So maybe that's why I'm still so into it. But I remember when I was in, I think it was in like middle, middle school or early high school, I went to um, a, a, a golf camp, like a Nike golf camp in um, Northern California. And it was like in the Pebble Beach area, we played all the famous courses. We played Spyglass, Poppy Hills, Spanish Bay with like 50 other, you know, junior golfers. It was awesome. Um, and this guy, Jeff Ritter, runs the program. I don't know if he runs it still today, but um, not Jeff Ritter, my manager, same name though. And uh, he basically designed the program in a way that we were like playing all these different courses, practicing, whatever. But the very first thing that he had us do there, um, he basically took all of these juniors into a classroom and he, I don't know what this experiment is, but he had us do this like mind control demonstration where basically you hold this little like magnet or ball that's attached to a string and you basically close your eyes and you're supposed to visualize like the ball starting to move or rotate. 
And obviously you're not touching it or anything, but we're all kind of sitting there. I have no idea if this is placebo or real or anything, but uh, we're all sitting there with our eyes closed. And he's like, just visualize this marble starting to move. And we all open our eyes like a minute later and all of them are are like rotating around. And I have no idea like how this is real Trippy, or what man. science is behind <laughs> this. Maybe, maybe, maybe our professor here can explain, but um, it kind of, his whole, the whole message was that like, your attitude and your mindset is everything and it actually controls like the physical world around you and and the results that you're seeing so like the whole motto of the camp was like positive thinking equals positive results and i have never let go of that little um mantra and yeah it was a very transformative (laughs) golf camp i would say so that's kind of one of the memories i would i would point to and and terms of how I got so invested in the mental side. Gabby, I know the professor has many leather-bound books behind him there and, and a lot of them about <laughs> math and math education. I I have a small library of mental game books, okay? And, and if I would have dedicated the same amount of time to my schoolwork as I did trying to figure out this mental side of the game, I would have a doctorate and be called the <laughs> professor on this show. So my, que- my simple question is this. Do you have a thing, one or two maybe, that you return to for your own golf regularly that helps you think your best around the golf course or hmm. just gets your mental game in that, you know, performance spot? Um, oh my gosh. Like during college golf, I would like, sometimes I would have like a song stuck in my head or something that I would go back to. And it just was, I don't even remember what song, but like, it would just calm you down a little bit, like repeating something in your mind, kind of having like a mantra, but a less serious one, I would say, to to distract yourself from what's going on. But I would say like nowadays um, when I'm on the course, sticking to my like routine, my pre-shot routine has been really important. Although that's more of like a physical manifestation of the mental game, it's so important to like have that repeatable set of actions that you do every time before you swing, because it's so important for your breathing and getting your mind right for the shot and committing and all of those amazing things. Um, But a lot of people when when they fall out of playing golf regularly, just go onto the course and like, you know, they're taking two practice swings here, three there, like lining up behind the ball, lining up in another direction or whatever it might be. But I always have to remind myself that this is something that I can control is my pre-shot routine. So why not standardize it and why not make it, you know, try to help myself in that way? Because if you're, if you're not doing that, you're just, you're only hurting yourself. So um, that's something that I always go back to is, is pre-shot routine, I would say. I think it was, wasn't a story that Annika had hers timed down to a tenth of a second. And even during tournaments, the caddy would keep track of that and let her know like, hey, you're a, a tenth short or you're a tenth long in your pre-shot routine. Let's make sure we get that dialed in. And I heard even stories of Tiger, like knowing how long he should walk a hundred yards. Like in a, I should walk a hundred yards in mm. 65 seconds, like all the way down to that level of a science. Yeah, 100%. I've heard that Annika story before. And even like, it's obviously when you're playing casual golf, it's easy to be like chatting with your friends, like right before you hit your shot. And if you're someone like me who's played competitively before, I always kind of like to, I want to try to play well every time I'm playing. You know what I mean? It's like kind of a hard box to 
to get out of, but I'm in it and I don't think I will ever escape it. But there, it's so easy to just like take a second, get, compose yourself before you hit the shot so that, you know, you're not looking back at it like with regret that you, were, you weren't you were focusing or, or whatever it might be. And so even if it's down to like how many looks you take at the target, like how you step into the shot, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing a little like rehearsal to remind yourself of a swing thought, that's another thing that I think is really important is like not focusing too much on on a specific swing thought during the round but if you have to like make it some kind of pre-shot like check in a way like you see justin thomas used to do that little like pre-shot you know half takeaway thing um which is something that's helped me a lot too in my with my own mechanics and my swing so if you're gonna have a swing thought make it a reminder before you hit your shot not during it Yeah, I, I subscribe to the the think box, play box, memory box uh, approach. Which, Ooh, if, if I'm thinking like in that. that play box, I got to step out. I got that's not the place to do the thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those are really good. I like the, those those uh, tips. I'm actually gonna when I go roast this this iron later today. I'm gonna think about my pre shot <laughs> routine again. I think I think I've changed yeah. it this year. Now now that you mentioned, it, I was like, shit, I'm doing something a little differently, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> As long uh, as you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. But Gabby, I want to talk about your uh, your career in as a golf journalist. Yeah. I mean, tell tell us, did you know this was going to be your path? I mean, wh- when did you say I'm going to go this route? And and tell us about your your budding career. Yeah, um, I feel like I didn't even realize this was a career path until um, my after my freshman year at Pomona. I really had nothing to do like over my summer break. Um, and I randomly was connected with a, a family friend who worked for Fox Sports at the time, which broadcasted all the USGA events. Um, and he knew I was a golfer. They needed some extra help on the production side. And basically I was hired to be like a production runner for Fox um, for two weeks. The first was the Curtis Cup at Quaker Ridge. And then the week after was Shinnecock US Open. Um, so I was just thrown into this like golf media TV world and I was like getting coffee, cleaning up the trucks, driving the analyst to the booth and earn your stripes, Ricky, earn your stripes, right? Literally. It was so cool. I was like embracing all of it. I was, you know, driving like Julie Inkster around in a golf cart and freaking out and all of that. Um, and then like the following week at the U S open, I think. Like they kind of realized that I, I knew what I was talking about. Like I knew I was kind of a golf nerd. I was, you know, chatting about like who was winning the tournament whenever I wasn't sweeping the floors. And um, they basically stationed me in like the features interview tent there. Um, so I worked with this one producer. Her name's TL Fiedler. She's a rock star and basically set me on this path um but she was basically her job was to bring players in after their rounds and get like featurey type clips of them so they could show it in the broadcast the next day um so we would get like the leaders to come in and she would ask them about the course she would ask them about random stuff and um but she was more used to covering football so she was always asking me like what do you think we should ask them how should we phrase this and i would take notes during the interviews and send them to producers all that so i was just thrown in the deep end basically um and i loved it so much and i got to be in the media center and see all the journalists asking their questions I remember being like blown away by um, Karen Krause from the New York Times. I don't know if you guys read her, but excellent, excellent she was stuff. super into super into the golf beat back then, and um, 
like I was just in awe of her questions, honestly, in the in the media media center. And I was like, how is no one getting like the responses that she's getting? Like this is so awesome. And she was probably one of like three women in the whole room. Mm-hmm. So um, seeing all that, just I was like, well, this is pretty sweet. <laughs> how, how do I get myself there? You know what I mean? So I basically, when I got back to school in the fall, um, I started writing for the school newspaper, um, covering all different sorts of sports and. Luckily, we had some amazing editors at our school paper. Like, I have friends that edited my work when I was like a sophomore in college that are now beat writers at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Um, so I'm very thankful for like all the tricks of the trade that I learned from them because I never had any formal journalism training. I, I was a politics major at Pomona. Um, so I did that for a while. Obviously, it got a little busy during golf season. I had to like, you know, budget my time and see what I could do. But I ended up getting a summer internship that following summer at NBC Sports. And I was a digital editorial intern for them. So I was like writing headlines, descriptions, you know, all the all the work that goes behind running like a huge digital sports media website like that. And it was, that was very pivotal for me to learn that stuff early on. Uh, but while I was there, I would like basically just pitch articles to the editors and like write them and then send them to them, even if I didn't ask for permission or anything. Um, and a couple of them got published, which is great. I did like this interview that I, I recently posted a clip from this on my Twitter, but I interviewed Akshay Batia when he was like 17 years old um, in the NBC Sports studio. They like let interns have a little experiment to use it and practice and film something for their reel. But I just decided to use it to like interview the number one junior golfer in the world at the time. And they're like, who is this kid? I was like, trust me, like you're going to know who he is in four years. What, winner um, on the PGA Tour. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out. And that was probably like the first golfer I ever interviewed on my own. So it's so cool to see him doing what he's doing now. Um, But yeah, then obviously things got a little funky during COVID. I was supposed to intern again for NBC at the Olympics actually in Tokyo, but then the program got all screwed up and delayed. And then like I wasn't in college anymore, so I couldn't be an intern anymore. So that got canceled and nixed. Um, And then during COVID, I didn't really know like what was going to happen. I didn't know how I was going to apply for jobs when it was a remote world and media was obviously a weird place, but a golf digest internship basically popped up. Um, and I had, I'd connected like a year prior to that with Hallie Ledbetter. I think I just like DM'd her on Instagram or something. Like I literally just reached out randomly and we started talking and she's the nicest person ever and helped me so much. Um, so I reconnected with her when I saw the internship, ended up like interviewing got it. The whole thing was great. Um, and it was perfect because it was a remote environment and I wasn't playing college golf. I, I would never have been able to do this internship if it was, if it wasn't for the pandemic. So that was a weird blessing in disguise. But, um, basically I worked for like the magazine team at golf digest during my spring of my senior year. I got to write some literal like magazine features as a senior in college and got published and it was incredible. I'm so thankful to all the editors there. Like Alan Pittman was my manager there and he's just a brilliant editor um, and like helped a lot of my work come together, even though I, again, like had very little experience in it. Um, but yeah, after that, I, I just love the company and they ended up offering me like a, a year long contract role, um, get my foot in the door. I was working for um, like the affiliate marketing side of the website. So like doing a lot of gear coverage, you know, um, equipment stories, all of that, which is such a cool world. And like, I made amazing connections 
in that and all the all the brands that I um, partnered with during that time, I still have great relationships with. But I definitely wanted to go into like the tournament coverage side of things. So I, I got I to gotta um, mention, I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. You did feature, uh, I think it was one of New Club Golf Society's Pro Shop in in, in a, oh. a merch item during that time. It was the, f- wow. it was our like, um, uh, I don't remember. It was this a flask. So it was a flask. You put a new club's first big media coverage was a freaking flask. Everyone was going to think really? we're, we're mobile drunks. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Wait, what article was it? It was like, do you remember? Yeah, it was like something to do with the ringer, I think, because it was seen there, like, or we were there. Um, I'll, I'll have to look it back up. But yeah, that's hilarious. Oh, my God. That is so funny. I pumped out so many of those articles. Like, I don't remember which one is which, or I, and I apologize if we like mischaracterized. No, it was you great. Guys it was great. Anything. Thank you for the coverage. Um, <laughs> oh, I, wow. That is so funny. I'll have to look back at that. But yeah, it was cool. Like, uh, it was a totally different side of the industry. Um, but obviously, I like kind of had my sights set all, elsewhere. So, Sports Illustrated basically popped up at the perfect time when that year was up. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's it's been amazing. I mean, I've been all over the place traveling. I've been getting some incredible opportunities um, to just like jump in, you know, and and learn this stuff as I go, basically, because I'm still learning. I'm still picking up the little things here and there. And my colleagues, Bob Herrig and Alex Maselli have been doing this forever and they're experts and are always giving me advice and, and helping me like frame my my stories and learn how to operate in a press room and like what's a no-no and what's okay and all that. So um, it's been really cool. Yeah. As a, as, a, as a golf fan, give us a little inside baseball because like I always <laughs> find it fascinating that, you know, in our two screen world now, it's like, I'm watching a lot of the stuff you're covering, Gabby, and then I'll, mm-hmm. I'll hop on Twitter maybe for a few minutes afterwards, and I see that oh, they've already posted like the recap of what I just read, or like oh. your your game piece. You know, like how yeah. in advance are you working on those, and how do you like how do deadlines work for you while you're covering events? It's basically just as fast as you can do it. I mean, like we, if I'm writing a game story from home, and I'm just like doing a little recap of the tournament, I'll start writing it like, well, when they tee off on the 10th hole of the final round, basically. And I'm like picking up little pieces of information that I can write about like the potential winners. So like a fact about what they did, you know, in the past five seasons or like if this is their first win or where they went to college, like all those little things that are going to pop up in the article at some point, I'm just like getting them ready. And then at the same time, obviously looking to see what happens in the tournament, like writing little notes about like, oh, what did their lie look like on the 12th hole when they had this really important shot or whatever. So just if I'm at home, I'm just like trying to gather as much information as I possibly can um, so that when the final putt drops, hopefully our article could be posted like within 10, 20 minutes of that, which is tough, but it's part of the deal now with everything just moving at such a fast pace. And getting quotes from like the TV interview, just like holding my phone up to the screen and recording what they say. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, and just getting something out there so that people have the information right away who didn't get to watch it. But when I'm on the road, it's been super cool because 
instead of doing kind of like the breaking trending news stuff that I do at home, which is just like churning out little stories, which people really like, and it gets, you know, obviously garners a lot of attention, kind of those little moments and like short, you know, 400, 500 word stories. But when I'm out there, it's been great that I've gone to like experiment with more feature type ideas, I would say, and more like creative angles to, um, to selling stories and obviously you're, you're there. So why not get the color and the, the the detail that you can get on the ground that no one else is seeing? Um, so it, it's been super cool to be able to do some of those type stories. Like I wrote one when I went to the PGA this year at um, Oak Hill, that was like my first major that I technically covered as a, as a golf journalist. And um, I did like a really fun a story that um, about like Brooks and Bryson when they were paired together. And I basically just like walked nine holes with them in the pouring rain and just like picked up on all the stuff that I was hearing and and kind of tried to like capture the moment there. Um, and I walked with Dylan DeChair, who like basically wrote the same story. And that kind of happens when you're out there too, because like all the journalists are basically chasing the same things. And his story was brilliant. I, I, I would honestly read his over mine. But um, it, it was it was so cool just like seeing people like him and, and all the other writers that I've read for the past however many years in action and like picking up things from from them and just, you know, learning from the best basically and trying to keep up for uh, on my own and, and just perfecting my own craft at the same time. Yeah, you seem to have a real affinity for tournament golf and maybe tournament golf is your answer to this because, you know, one thing I observe is you cover a lot of stuff within golf and across your career, your young career, it's impressive how much you've already covered and the number of articles you put out that touch on a little bit of everything. If you could choose one area to cover where it's like, hey, the editorial group comes to you and said, this is your niche for the next five years. What do you want to, what do you want to cover? And why, and why do you want to cover that? That's such a good question. <laughs> um, Guests always say that about your questions, think. Kevin. They never say that about mine. <laughs> I'm so insecure well, it's about stumping that. me. It's such a good question. Uh, no, you're right, Gabby. It is a good question. Well, I obviously told you guys I'm really passionate about the mental game. So I think that would be that would be a cool area to cover. Um, especially if like this is in an ideal world, but if players were more willing to like be vulnerable about that kind of stuff and really open up and explain what's going on up there. Um, but I feel like that's not totally the situation right now and like people are kind of protective especially when they're in like tough spots in their careers like we're seeing it kind of happen with JT right now and everyone wants to know what's going on what's going on and it's hard for him to like really put it into words um but I guess I mean I I think in both the women's and the men's game like the pinnacle of the sport are the, the majors and I think that in an ideal world like if if someone said like this is what you're covering for the next five years I would literally just focus on just the majors and like try to learn everything I could about the course and like the setting and the history behind those venues and maybe just do like kind of like big blow up features about them. I always find it so interesting to like discover something unique about the history of a course that's hosting a major. Like again, going back to the PGA, I did this story about the like four aces that happened um, at the, I think it was 19... 89 us open um that was hosted there and i ended up just like discovering this crazy story about like how the four aces came to be and like how the greenskeepers like predicted this would happen and then there was like the flag on the hole was 
stolen by like the USGA guy and then he returned it to the club 30 years later, like the weirdest stuff that you would never really uncover if you didn't dive into that part of the history of the course and the background. And it's hard because the PGA Tour moves so quickly. It's like tournament after tournament. So you really have to like plan in advance for that kind of stuff. So I guess if someone told me that for the next five years, I could just focus on covering like the majors and the women's and men's games, I would be all over that. <laughs> do you do you have a favorite major? I think the Open. Good answer. I think, yeah, Link's <laughs> Golf, baby. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's so cool. Stop fishing. So Stop fishing, Kevin, to, to reinforce your unbelief. <laughs> uh, Gabby, obviously Masters, a, like, but the open. Let me ask you a tougher <laughs> question. I'm going to ask you a tough question. How oh, many God, majors are there in the women's game? There are five. Okay. All right. Uh, there's, we're talking during the Evian. So for those that aren't familiar, like there's a lot of debate around this, right? Like, should that be included in the major debate? I don't really want to go there. What I want to talk about is because this episode releases, you said the open. Let's talk about the women's mm -hmm. open. And I I'd like yeah. to uh I'd like to air one issue I, I have with this the, the women's open. And I think it has to change. And I want I want to hear your opinion. Okay. IMG still owns this thing. I interned at IMG. It's run by fantastic people that very well understand money and how a dollar works. But for the betterment of the game of golf, for the future of the women's game, I think the the, the RNA has to do something. Like the RNA needs to own this event. And the Women's Open should be the Women's Open Championship. AIG, I understand the dollars are important, but they can take a presenting sponsor spot just like Rolex does, just like IBM does. Like, I don't understand why this is so hard. Like, there's there's tradition and history that makes majors special. Like, how can the 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 RNA stay, like kind of stand by as this is happening? What do you have any thoughts? Is this like, am I planting a seed mm. for a future story here as as this open Maybe. comes up? I haven't thought about it that much, honestly, because I feel like it's just so common with the women's majors. Like you have KPMG, women's PGA and like Chevron Championship. The name was changed for the, the sponsor this year. And like, obviously, it's it's I don't want to use the word annoying, but it's like bothersome that the names of these majors like don't just can't just stand alone because the women's game, like at the end of the day, it needs those resources and they're helping a lot. So like. Yes, I would love to see it stand alone, but at the same time, I like understand what's happening. And maybe that's like a conversation for a couple years from now or more. Um, I haven't really thought about it that much, but I would agree that it would be way cooler if it was just like the women's open. <laughs> uh, I'll give you my other my other issue. I'd like to air a grievance with the RNA here. Uh, so <laughs> it's grievance hour. Okay. Here Martin the, Slumbers, Mr. Slumbers, thank you for listening. Uh, You're listening. I'll, I'll send you the show notes for a recap. Um, what about Lynx Golf? Like, okay, the women's open will be at Walton Heath this year. Everyone, I, I've had some buddies that have have played there, and and some other folks from overseas have said fantastic golf course. Really, like so much history. Um, uh, James Braid, I think, was their longtime head pro mm -hmm. there. Like it's, it's got so much cool history and it's a fantastic golf course. However, it is not Lynx Golf, and I just think it's yeah. doing a disservice. Like if the Rota is the Rota and and they commit to Lynx Golf courses for the men, then why are they not doing the exact same thing for the women's game? Um, I I don't. It's not a knock to Walton Heath. I just think it's it's a knock again to the RNA. We need to have the Open Championship played at 
the rota or a similar links specific rota. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree. Obviously, I've been reading about Walton Heath as well, and I it looks spectacular. Mm-hmm. Like the the heather, the purple heather is going to be so cool. Like how beautiful that's going to look on camera and all the history surrounding the course. Like I I'm working on a story right now about how um Winston Churchill called Walton Heath his home course. Hmm. Um, getting some some detail there from the club historian that hopefully will develop over the coming weeks. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think I'm really looking forward to next year when they play St. Andrews. I mean, it's just going to yes. be like, it's going to be so special. I hope, hopefully, maybe we'll even get to go. It's it's going to be a huge week in, in women's golf. Um, just like, kind of like it was this week, this year at Pebble Beach, um, there's just this whole trend of like for to grow the women's game and get more coverage around it and get people more excited about it. Like you have to have the, the venues there. You have to have the history that comes with these courses and, and the allure that it brings to watching the broadcast. Like it's just cool to see pro golfers navigate some of the most famous designs in the world and ones that everyone wants to play themselves and just seeing and comparing like your experience to theirs and at a place like Pebble Beach, obviously it's ridiculously expensive, but a lot of people have played it. It's public. So it's cool to like compare those experiences and same at St. Andrew's old course. Like I've played it. It's going to be awesome to see some of these women like literally come down the stretch in a major and I walk the same fairways. So um, I think, yes, I think the RNA needs to emphasize that with women as well. I I don't know if this year is an exception. I don't know what the rest of the plan looks like in 2025 and 2026. I'm not totally sure where they're going next, but it looks like it looks like there is. I forget, but I'm hopeful for the future is what I would say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Porth Crawl is yeah, on I agree with senior you. men's now, and it looks fantastic as well. Oh, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think you have to have the places like St. Andrews, Pebble Beach, like for sure, yeah. make their jump. But I just think the the tradition of links, true links golf, and and from golf is is special. Like it's it's great. Mm-hmm. It's just not links golf. I think we're all we've all played enough to know that that's where the Open Championship belongs. So yeah, it has the vibes. Like it has like the same colors kind of, but just not the coast. <laughs> the, the, the other thing, and, and you know, I've been uh, a fan of golf for sure, maybe more of a casual fan of, of the women's professional game over the years, but this tournament really does draw me in for that reason. Like if you think about these last couple of years, like they're distinct memories for me of like Ashley Buhai last year at Muirfield yeah. coming back from that double. Like that, that was, was insane. maybe my favorite tournament to watch last year. Uh, Anna Norquist at Carnoustie the year before mm-hmm. that. Sophia Popov at Royal Troon. Like that mm-hmm, unheard, mm-hmm. that's like the Ben Curtis, I, I would imagine, of the women's game. I don't know what a world ranking was at the time, but like this, that's what's been cool is like for, for those that really have that deeper love of golf, I think generally they love the links, the, the links, watching links golf more, at least on Twitter, they, yeah. they would agree to that. Um, and, and I just think it's such an awesome event. So what, what, what are you kind of looking at this week with Walton Heath as this week, meaning when our episode airs. Um, yes. From a player perspective, do you got any, I know it's early, but do you got any picks or thoughts on, on who might win this year's Open? Yeah, I was thinking about this a little bit. I feel like I have two players in mind. Maybe they're a bit obvious, but um, the first 
that just immediately popped up for me is Minji Lee. Um, I feel like Walton Heath kind of has similar vibes to like Australian um, golf and like the settings that her and her brother are both, both very used to. So I can see it being a great golf course for her and she just hits it so damn straight. And that's going to be the premium on hitting fairways is going to be huge there. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, the heather is so weird. It's like not your typical fescue. There's flowers involved. Like you, I I don't know if you guys have checked out the Walton Heath Instagram, but I highly recommend. They have these really awesome like explainer videos with the head pro and some of the, the crew there, like basically going into detail about how to escape this kind of shot and what the pros are going to be facing um, during the week. So I highly recommend checking that out. And it's just been like a really cool teaser for the week for me and just seeing like some of the crazy shots that we're going to we're going to see on TV. But um, I think obviously like the the premium is going to be hitting fairways and hitting greens. Um, and then we're going to see some some really create creative shots, I think, around the greens when you do mess up, because I think people always say during a major like you're going to mess up. So you you have to be able to to be in those uncomfortable positions and be able to get out of them with um with composure. And I think Minji is, is she's rock solid mentally. Like you, if, if she's coming down the stretch with the lead, like she's not, you know, she's not being phased. So we saw that obviously at the, the U S women's open, um, at pine needles. And I can see her winning and winning the last major this year. And I think women's golf is due for like a star to win a major. Um, obviously like it's been a little bit weird this year that all the major winners have kind of been like these breakout stars. So, mm-hmm. I think we're due for, I mean, who knows what's going to happen this week at the Evian. We haven't heard about the winner there yet, but um, I can totally see someone like Minji coming out on top. The other one that I, I'm, she's, this is my like recent obsession in women's golf. And I think a lot of people can relate is Charlie Hull. Yeah, um, so I was hoping yeah. you were And going she, she, she made the run obviously at Pebble and I was there and got to hear her speak and kind of see her in her element in person, which I had never, I'd never seen her play in person before. Um, and she's just so cool. Like she's so locked in. Her routine is amazing. Like she has that kind of like jittery waggle thing going on that you like, you get so scared that she's going to like accidentally. She, hit the she ball. plays she like a boxer, you know, like, like yeah. she's going to rip out of there, out of the corner and just start 100%. throwing haymakers. I mean, I just love the energy that she plays with. Yeah, like you can literally see the adrenaline like pulsing through her, I feel like. And that clip of her hitting under the tree on 18 and like mm-hmm. that that amazing line, like shy kids don't get sweets, just made me a fan of hers immediately. Um, and I feel like we need more of that like personality and fire to come out in the women's game. And it's totally there. It's just like the attention needs to be placed on like the right characters and the right people for it to come out more. And I think she's definitely one of them even though like in her post round interviews, she might not like reveal that much about herself. She is a very, very fascinating player to watch. So like if you put a camera on her the entire round, like you're going to get stuff like that. You know what I mean? So um, she's a, she's I think a native she daughter of England too. Yeah, you know, she's going to exactly. have a crowd behind so, her as well. She's in home territory. Um, her caddy is an amazing character too. I like, so I don't know if you guys saw this, but at the U S women's open, um, they kind of like the story was buried a little bit but basically this random dude like walked up onto the range and started hitting balls like with the leaders before the tournament i don't know if you guys caught i, caught, I did catch this that. yes yeah but then it kind of got deleted and everything <laughs> and then but i was i was trying to ask people about it to see and like i i asked charlie hill's caddy 
about um, if he saw the, the guy and he was like, no, no, but fair play to him. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is great. Like, you're there. a chiller. Yeah, exactly. So I like that vibe from him. That's so cool. Well, yeah, I'll be tuning yeah. in this week and looking forward to uh, some of your coverage on uh, on the AIG. Yeah, Women's thank Open. you. I'm definitely trying to do feature stuff around that. So. Gabby, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, I don't want to take you're you're hanging out with family, so we don't want to keep you from them because I know you got to get back to the right. the journalist grind. Um, Professor, any last questions for for Gabby here this morning? No, I'm just looking forward to watching the the open now, and I'm gonna ride for Charlie Hall this week. That's I'm, I'm sold. Gabby's got me convinced. That's, yeah. I'm gonna wake up with my coffee and go Charlie. <laughs> That's right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, she's. it'll be fun. Well, well Gabby, thanks uh, again. And uh, we got to have you back. I think we're, we're always looking for like for sure. folks to come on to be timely for us with like ma- majors especially. So we could give you a little more more opportunity to cover your favorite thing in golf, the majors. But uh, but this oh, has boy. been really enlightening. I, I, I learned a lot about you here this morning and um, just very clear that you're very passionate about the game of golf. And so keep doing what you're doing and congrats on on everything thus far. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. I will hopefully talk to you soon. Gabrielle Herzig, she is going places, huh? You, you would have thought she's been in the industry for 20 years with the, the way she talks, the, what she's produced, what she could talk on, her experiences, her mindset. Just wow. Yeah. And I think Golf journalism in general. I know we've had a lot of golf journalists and media personalities on the show this year. Uh, it's just fascinating. The more I learn about it, the more like I gotta wonder how the 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 um what what's the word I'm looking for? Like the perseverance and the energy required in the in the you know you really have to obsess about some details and keep things that keep you like good writing needs things that keep you motivated i think she ta- talked about that right like turn out those 500 word pieces are important but she wants to dive into some topics you can tell i mean and and she and she shared about that and i like that this year on the show we've kind of given some of these folks maybe an opportunity to do that like the mental game side that we were talking about today was so fascinating to me i would love to see her you know write a deeper piece on that yeah you can I mean, in the generalized form, several of the people we've talked to in the journalism world, you can just feel their passion for the game, right? And just these, just so much passion and energy and love. And I think a lot of times it's easy as a consumer to get cynical of people in journalism. A little bit of the nature of the beast, what they have to produce in terms of especially today's click world, like everything's tracked, which ones are bringing us the dollars. So they, they do get stuck in a way. I don't know necessarily as significant sure. as Rappaport painted a picture. Uh, I think that was a little bit... Um, Maybe his own personal experiences, but a little disingenuous relative to the rest of the field. But I think it's true that there is a there is an element they have to be tailored to what brings in the dollars. But you can feel the appetite of all these people for long form pieces. Like talking to her, it's like I want her to go over to cover the the town matches of St Andrews, right? Like someone to fly over there, write a long form yes. piece on that. She would be perfect for doing that with her experience yeah. of studying abroad over there. Um, Man, just the appetite for them. And I and I, I want those pieces. I'm selfish here. I want those pieces personally, right? Like what Sean Martin did, I think it was Riviera or yeah, Riviera, maybe the piece he did on, on the PGA Tour website that was a little longer form with its history and good images. I want those pieces. And it sounds like everybody we've talked to wants to do those pieces. So whatever we can do to just get them producing that that level of content too. Like as an audience, we need to push for that. If that's what, for those of us that want that, be loud. Be tweet, tweet, tweet yeah. these organizations. Like, make sure to tell them that's what you want because we'll, we'd be better off getting getting those pieces from them. 
Yeah, it's it's like it's. It, you, I mean, you heard it from Gabby. You heard it from Sean Martin. You heard it from Dan Rapport. It's like, yeah, the algorithms and and what people click on is gonna gonna dictate something. But you know, a number of voices can be heard when when they're pitching ideas. They just need they just need some confidence that you know there's going to be readers. There's going to be eyeballs. There's going to be interest. There, uh, and and I think what's cool about that is that those can lead to a new way of coverage in in a way. Um, just you, you just heard about, you know, Gabby's research of Walton Heath. I mean, she could go a hundred directions now with some of the articles she's going to be writing around that, that history. And, um, it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? When the algorithms dictate what ends up being produced. And, and I just think, yeah, be heard, you know, let, 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 let these people know what we're trying to, what what we would like to consume, what we'd like to see. Yeah. If you're always following algorithm, you're never going to change the game. We'd never see change ever. Right. So you have to be that company that doesn't do the short-term algorithm and thinks long-term, what can I do that? Yeah, it might have a short-term hit, but I'm going to be the one five to 10 years from now that says, oh, they change things. Like they changed where the audience looked. And we're seeing that in the women's game. I mean, they're investing more money into it. And guess what's happening as they're doing that? It's getting more eyeballs, right? Investment, commitment. I mean, go to your point of the RNA. The RNA just needs to have conviction and get behind the women's open in the same way. And guess what? In the long term, I bet the eyeballs will follow and people will follow and it'll be better. The game will be better for it because you had a conviction. Even if the money dips a little bit, hey, at least you can go to bed with conviction and say, I, I had a backbone and I, I did something because it was the right thing to do, not because it was the thing that made us money and and, and uh, got the uh, cl- uh, quick clicks. Right, right. Well, speaking of the things that we want to do, I want to go hit do you, this cl- golf you, club I've been holding this episode. Have you let that down? That's been your hands <laughs> no. the whole episode. Or you've been maybe you've been I, playing Rory shot in your head this th- This whole might time. be no and, and apologies to Gabby if she's still listening. I I was I was very focused on the conversation, but this is the first and last call that I have a golf club in my hand on on for the show, but no, I, I got a Titleist T series T200 in my hazardous uh black 105 shaft. I, I'm ready to just kind of go shape this thing around. So thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by Titleist and their new T-Series irons. Thank you to Team Titleist for supporting our members and the club this year. We look forward to the partnership and many exciting announcements ahead. Professor, enjoy your weekend. We'll, we'll see you next Go week. Go hit those stingers, Matt. <laughs>